0: Part six of the story of Peterloo by Francis Archibald Bruton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The processions from the outlying districts. We must now turn to the districts outside Manchester where preparations were early afoot for the great meeting. Detachments of reformers were streaming along the main roads towards Manchester with bands playing and banners flying and caps of liberty held aloft. These were red peat caps of Phrygian shape and had been used as symbols by the revolutionists in France. The cap is supposed to have been employed as a symbol of the manumission of a slave in Roman times. We have actual details of several of these processions, the Middleton, Royton and Chatterton parties, the Rochdale section, the Saddleworth troop, the Oldham group and those from Stockport, from Pendleton, from Ashton and from Bury. The march of the Middleton and Rochdale detachments is graphically described by Bamford, who led the first, the whole contingent numbering, according to his estimate, about 6,000 men, with numbers of women and children. By 8 a.m. all Middleton was astir. The procession was arranged, with a band of youths in front, wearing laurels. Then came representatives of the various districts, five abreast, then the band and the colours. These bore the inscriptions, unity and strength, liberty and fraternity parliaments annual suffrage universal a crimson velvet cap inscribed libertas was carried among the banners then came five abreast the delegates from eighteen different districts at the sound of a bugle some three thousand formed a hollow square and bamford addressed them enjoining them to be steadfast and serious not to offer resistance if their leaders were arrested and to lay aside their sticks This last injunction Bamford communicated to them in accordance with general orders, somewhat against his will. He speaks of his contingent as a most respectable assemblage of labouring men, all decently though humbly attired. My address, he adds, was received with cheers. It was heartily and unanimously assented to. We opened into a column. The music struck up. The banners flashed in the sunlight. Other music was heard. It was that of the Rochdale party coming to join us. We met, and a shout from ten thousand startled the echoes of the woods and dingles. Then all was quiet save the breath of music, and with intense seriousness we went on. The party included some hundreds of married women and several hundred girls, who danced and sang. And thus, accompanied by our friends and our dearest and most tender associations, we went slowly towards Manchester. We may stand by Bamford's monument in Middleton Churchyard today and looking down the hill picture the scene. On the monument are inscribed these words of John Bright. Bamford was a reformer when to be so was unsafe and he suffered for his faith. Leaving these we turn to the Oldham contingent. They met on the village Green, Bank Grange, at nine and were there joined by the Chadderton section. The Chadderton banner is still in existence it was made of white and green silk, measured about 12 feet by 9 feet, and bore the usual mottos of the reformers. The Reuton section carried two banners of red and green silk. The second is of special interest. It was inscribed, The Royton Female Union, Let Us Die Like Men and Not Be Sold Like Slaves. It was afterwards captured by the Cheshire Yeomanry and was produced as, quote, evidence against the reformers in the trial at York in the following year. The most beautiful of all the banners was said to be one of white silk, carried by the olden people. But the banner which furnished the most important evidence in the trial at York was a black one, carried in the procession of the Saddleworth Lees and Mossley Union. It was inscribed, Equal representation or death, unite and be free, no borough mongering. Taxation without representation is unjust and tyrannical, and it bore figures of justice holding the scales and two hands clasped. After the lapse of a century, the talk of the terrible danger hidden behind this banner on the part of a council at the trial and public speakers elsewhere may appear somewhat ludicrous. The Alderman Royton Colors were escorted by some 200 women dressed in white. The procession was joined later by the Falesworth radicals, Altogether, there seem to have been 16 banners displayed at the meeting, with five caps of liberty. As the contingents approached Manchester, horsemen rode out in various directions to meet them, and returned to report to the assembled magistrates. One of these scouts was Mr Francis Phillips. In his exposure, he tells how he rode, quote, along the turnpike road leading to Stockport, and at a place called Ardwick Green, about one and a half miles from Manchester Exchange, met a regiment of reformers marching in file, principally three deep. This column, 1,400 or 1,500 strong, marched extremely well, observing the step though without music. It included about 40 women, and the colours were handsome and inscribed No Corn Laws and Universal Suffrage mr phillips is careful to add nearly half of the men carried stout sticks he slipped back to manchester by another road and reported these facts to the magistrates immediately afterwards the column carried its colours into st peter's fields and phillips then took up his station in the cordon of special constables from the evidence at the trials we obtained details of the berry contingent five abreast and three thousand strong with many women and of that from Pendleton, and the Reverend Edward Stanley tells us how he met the reformers from Ashton. Mr. Archibald Prentice, standing at a window, watched the crowd stream down Mosley Street. I never, he says, saw a gayer spectacle. They were haggard looking men, certainly, but the majority were young persons in their best Sunday suits, and the light coloured dresses of the cheerful, tidy looking women relieved the effect of the dark fustians worn by the men. The marching order, of which so much was said afterwards, was what we often see now in the processions of Sunday school children and temperance societies. To our eyes, the numerous flags seemed to have been brought to add to the picturesque effect of the pageant. Slowly and orderly, the multitude took their places round the hustings. One party laughed at the fears of the magistrates, and the remark was that if the men intended mischief, they would not have brought their wives or their children with them. I passed round the outskirts of the meeting and mingled with the groups that stood chattering there. I occasionally asked the women if they were not afraid to be there, and the usual laughing reply was, What have we to be afraid of? Mr John Benjamin Smith, who watched the meeting from a window in Mrs Orton's house next door to Mr Buxton's in Mount Street, says, We reached here about 11.30, and on our way saw large bodies of men and women with bands playing flags and banners bearing devices. There were crowds of people in all directions, full of humour, laughing and shouting and making fun. It seemed to be a gala day with the country people, who were mostly dressed in their best, and brought with them their wives. And when I saw boys and girls taking their father's hands in the procession, I observed to my aunt, These are the guarantee of their peaceful intentions. We need have no fears. And so we passed on to Mrs. Orton's house. For two hours, the Yeomanry and Hussars remained at their stations dismounted. Occasionally, a few of the officers would ride up to Deansgate to watch the procession. One of them writes, During the greater portion of that period, a solid mass of people moved along the street. They marched at a brisk pace with ranks well closed up, five or six bands of music being interspersed. Mr. Hunt was in an open carriage adorned with flags and drawn by the people. As soon as the great bulk of the procession had passed, we were ordered to stand to our horses. Manchester at that time was the mere nucleus of the Manchester of today. Districts which now lie well within its boundaries were then outlying villages. Even in the heart of the city, several of the main thoroughfares familiar to us did not then exist. Market Street was still a mere winding lane, in places only five yards broad from building to building. The bill for widening and straightening this thoroughfare was passed just two years after Peterloo. The present Corporation Street and Victoria Street did not exist, and Deansgate had not been widened. The pavements in places were only 18 inches wide, and several accidents occurred on the day of Peterloo from falls into the cellars, which were then used as living rooms. Bearing in mind these facts, it is easy to follow the various contingents as they converged towards St Peter's Fields, the principal procession being that of the chairman. Henry Hunt was a country gentleman of Wiltshire, whose personal characteristics made him specially successful as a demagogue, and there's no doubt that he was perfectly sincere. Bamford, whose admiration for him waned in later years, describes him as gentlemanly in his manner and attire, six feet and better in height, and extremely well formed. The white hat which he wore became the symbol of radicalism. He was shrewd, quick at repartee, and had the copious flow of highly-coloured language which delights a crowd. He was exceptionally clever in handling a great gathering, and was always scrupulously careful to keep within the strict letter of the law. His vanity we can forgive, for he rendered yeoman service to the cause of liberty. But his private life, the details of which are told with almost brutal candour by himself in his memoirs, will not bear inspection. Of his political record he has no reason to be ashamed. He presented the earliest petition to Parliament for women's suffrage. He fought the battle of reform in its darkest days and he attacked the first reform bill demanding the ballot, universal suffrage and the repeal of the Corn Laws. He's been compared in some respects to Wilkes. As a practical reformer he failed because he never understood the place of compromise in politics but he was a shrewd and far-seeing ideologue and a splendid political gladiator, Bamford says. Whatever may be the correct estimate of him, there's no doubt that at the time we're considering he was the object of boundless admiration on the part of the reformers, who simply idolised him. After he was bailed at Lancaster, pending his trial, he was accorded a triumphal procession through Lancashire to Manchester, and in London he was cheered to the echo by enormous crowds. The contingents from Middleton and Rochdale, led by Samuel Bamford, were approaching Collyhurst when a message reached them from Hunt directing them to come by way of Newton and head his procession from Smedley Cottage. This they did, but taking a wrong turn at the top of Shude Hill, they led down Swan Street, Oldham Street, and Mosley Street and swept round the left hand corner, i.e., the south side of St Peter's Church, into. Quote, a wide unbuilt space occupied by an immense multitude, which opened and received them with loud cheers. Hunt's procession, meanwhile, took the route down Shude Hill, and, Corporation Street not being in existence, wound round Hanging Ditch, Old Millgate, the Market Place, and St. Mary's Gate into Deansgate, whence it emerged along the fragment of Peter Street, and made for the Hustings. On the box seat of the carriage in which Hunt rode, sat Mrs Mary Files, carrying a white silk flag as the president of the Manchester Female Reformers. Mrs Banks, in a note in the appendix to her Manchester Man, states that this Mrs Files was personally known to her. In her story, she represents her as sabred at the Hustings. We've already referred to the Female Reformers of Royton and their banner of red and green silk. The female reformers of Manchester also had their banner and had planned to present it to Mr. Hunt after the meeting, with an address stating that, As wives, mothers, daughters, in their social domestic moral capacities, they came forward in the sacred cause of liberty, a cause in which their husbands, their fathers and their sons had embarked, the last hope of a suffering humanity. Still more interesting is the pathetic appeal which these female reformers of Manchester, who were well organised, issued before the meeting to the wives, mothers, sisters and daughters of the higher and middle classes of society, describing the terrible privations which had made the petitioners, sick of life and weary of a world where poverty, wretchedness, tyranny and injustice had so long been allowed to reign among men, and imploring these more favoured ladies to come forward and join hands with them in the struggle for reform. The committee of the Manchester female reformers, dressed in white, walked behind Hunt's carriage. They afterwards sent messages of sympathy to him during his imprisonment in Ilminster jail. Our tyrants, they said, have immured you in a dungeon, but we have enshrined you in our hearts. On the expiration of his term, they presented to him a silver urn suitably inscribed. The woman on the box seat was afterwards confused by the magistrates in their report to the Home Secretary with a Mrs. Elizabeth Gaunt who was found in the carriage after the meeting in a fainting condition. Taylor was quick to seize upon this instance of what he ironically termed official accuracy. This poor woman had been wounded by the cavalry. She was nevertheless arrested and confined for over a week at the New Bailey when, quote, the court had great pleasure in ordering her immediate discharge. As the carriage made its way across the square, Mr Hunt standing up, a great shout arose from the crowd, whose numbers have been variously estimated. Mr Hunt told a London audience afterwards that there were 150,000, but we shall probably not be far wrong if we put the figure at 60,000. Well might Bamford describe the scene as solemnly impressive. Arrived at the Hustings, Hunt was at once voted to the chair, and taking off his white hat he began his address. We have abundant material to enable us to reconstruct the scene. Along part of the upper side of Windmill Street ran a row of houses. In front of these, on the slightly rising ground, stood a number of spectators, and the dense crowd reached from Windmill Street back towards the Friends Meeting House on the north. Mount Street was bounded then on the east by a row of houses reaching, perhaps, one-third of the way along the present Midland Hotel. The crowd did not reach right up to these houses, and there were stragglers in the intervening space. It was in this intervening space that the Manchester Yeomanry reined up later on as they arrived. Above the heads of the crowd at intervals could be seen the various banners and caps of liberty. Mr Hunt and the other speakers were standing on the simple hustings facing northwards. The magistrates were watching the proceedings from a window on the first floor of the house of Mr Buxton in Mount Street at the window of the room immediately above them stood the reverend edward stanley rector of alderley an unintentional but keenly observant spectator of every detail at one of the windows of the adjoining house stood mr j b smith all around in the side streets but not visible from st peter's fields were posted the regular troops and the yeomanry and mounted messengers for communication with them were in attendance at the magistrates house among the representatives of the press were mr john tyers for the london times mr edward baines for the leeds mercury and mr john smith for the liverpool mercury purely as a guess we should be inclined to conjecture that the last of the three may have been the author of the anonymous impartial narrative the magistrates had at length come to a decision of some kind if a few of the inhabitants of the town would put their names to a statement to the effect that they considered that the town was endangered by the meeting that would justify them in arresting the leaders accordingly richard owen and some thirty others including mr phillips signed the necessary affidavit and a warrant in accordance with it was drawn up stating that richard owen had made oath that henry hunt and others had arrived in a car at the area near st peter's church that an immense mob had assembled and that he considered the town in danger referring to this strange mode of procedure afterwards Sir Francis Burdett said, If arrests are to follow opinions which may find a place in other men's heads, there is an end to liberty. However weak their action may appear to us today, it was on this ground that Nadine, the deputy constable, was instructed by the magistrates to go and interrupt a great peaceful meeting by arresting the leaders. Nadine assured them that even with the hundreds of special constables at his disposal, He could not carry out the arrests without the assistance of the military. Hunt had only been speaking for a minute or two, therefore, when riders were dispatched for the troops. It is difficult to understand why a single message was not sent to Lieutenant Colonel Lestrange, who was in command of the whole force. By a strange fatality, the magistrates, at the same instant that they sent for Colonel Lestrange, dispatched a horseman to Pickford's yard for the troop of Manchester Yeomanry concealed there which they had chosen to retain under their own control. The message which was produced at the trial was as follows. To the commanding officer, Portland Street. Sir, as chairman of the Select Committee of Magistrates, I request you to proceed immediately to Number 6, Mount Street, where the magistrates are assembled. They conceive the civil power wholly inadequate to preserve the peace. I have the honour, etc., William Holton. At the moment that this letter was sent, Mr. Hunt was in an orderly manner addressing a perfectly peaceful meeting of some 60,000 men, women and children. Judging from what followed, Colonel Lestrange seems to have made a skilful disposition of the forces at his disposal, closing in the infantry on the square from several points, while he himself led the Hussars and the Cheshire Yeomanry by a rather circuitous route, viz. along Deansgate as far as Fleet Street, a street which then ran parallel to Great Bridgewater Street on the site of the present Central Station, then along Fleet Street and so up Lower Mosley Street, where the artillery were posted, to Windmill Street. Meanwhile, the troop of Manchester Yeomanry stationed in Pickford's Yard had lost no time in obeying their summons, and not having so far to go, they were easily first on the spot. They came along Nicholas Street and down Cooper Street, As they advanced along this street, at a tolerably brisk pace, a woman carrying her two-year-old child in her arms watched them pass, and then attempted to cross the street. Just at the moment, one of the yeomanry who had been kept behind came past at a hand gallop. The woman was knocked down and stunned. The child was thrown several yards, fell on its head and was killed. This was the first casualty sworn affidavits to this incident may be read in the Hunt Memorial Papers at the Manchester Reform Club. We shall see in a moment that a woman was involved in the second casualty also. The whole fortune of the day turned on what happened in the few minutes that followed. It must be remembered that the troop of Manchester Yeomanry that arrived on the scene first was a local levy formed not long before for the purpose of aiding the civil power and consisted largely of local tradesmen who seem to have been stung by the taunts levelled at them by the labouring classes, whom they were intended to intimidate. There is no doubt that their horses were not under control, and that they were therefore not qualified for the difficult task before them. A mere handful of trained, mounted troops, properly directed, can, by feints, by backing, by rearing, and by skilful manoeuvres, break up and move a large crowd without injury to All parties are agreed that the yeomanry halted in disorder. Even Hunt noticed that and remarked upon it, though he was a hundred yards away. On this point, we have the clear testimony of the chairman of the magistrates, Mr. Holton, who in his evidence at the trial said that, quote, their horses being raw and unused to the field, they appeared to him to be in a certain degree of confusion. Mr. Stanley again says, they halted in great disorder, and so continued for the few minutes they remained. This disorder was attributed by several persons in the room to the undisciplined state of their horses, little accustomed to act together, and probably frightened by the shout of the populace which greeted their arrival. It is impossible to avoid asking whether the whole story might not have been a different one if these undisciplined irregular troops had been held back, and the 15th Hussars, men who were wearing their Waterloo medals, won only four years before, had been employed instead. For be it remembered that up to this moment, the magistrates had no intention of using troops to disperse the meeting. That was emphatically stated by Mr. Holton at the trial. Their decision was to arrest the leaders, and they seem to have anticipated that when that was done, the meeting would disperse of itself, as had happened under exactly similar circumstances at the meeting of Blanketeers. End of Part 6